let's, um, we'll go ahead and pray and then try to get halfway oriented to where we were, th- what, three weeks ago. So at any rate, um, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the day, for going through it with us. We're just grateful, Lord, for the assurance of your presence with us that you watch over us and you keep us. We ask for your presence here tonight as we look some more at the long history that we inherit, really. And I pray that it would be instructive to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So whenever it was we met last, um, I think we got up through the start of universities from cathedral churches, the um, whole surge of the building of cathedrals, the architecture of which was meant to draw people to God, awesomeness of them um, was a purpose largely dealing with an illiterate um, community and the stained glass windows and things of that sort would show the uh, Bible stories. So the cathedrals are an interesting movement. And there was competition between uh, great cities as to who could build, you know, the highest. They'd have spires that would get up 50, 60 feet. Um, and <coughs> so that was a that was a rush kind of of a several centuries of that and then those became centers not only worship but of learning almost all the great universities came out of those um, places you had um, the rise too of humanism in philosophy and humanism being that the the predominant thinking that humans heavily influenced by monasticism and all that we're all we're worms we're scum we're we're sinful rotten you know whatever um there was a reaction against that that of course like all reactions goes too far the other way we call it humanism but it's a it's a growing belief in the ability um, of humans to solve our own problems. It's the very early um, beginning of what finally flowers down into this age where we don't need God. Technology and all the advancements we have, um, we can fix our own problems. And there's something called, a kind of the thinking is the perfectibility of man. That we got this. Now, you have to shut your eyes and not read the news. Or, you know, you have to be completely detached from reality to ever think that. But the vast majority of people think that. Our politicians think that. Um, we can fix it. Nothing can be denied from us. That's really an ancient thought 
Nothing that we've run into today is new. The ancient thought that you, we hear that cropped up in, in the Tower of Abel. You know, when they were building it. And, you know, and even God said, well, at least in their heads, they'll, they'll never be denied anything to do. So I'm going to have to put a stop to it. Um, so a lot of f stuff going on in the tens and elevens. And like we've done, sometimes we have to go on following one train of thought. You go down a few centuries and then we have to back up. There's a lot of things going on at the same time. So where we left off then is in about the um, <clears throat> 11th and 12th centuries, the 10s and the 11s and starting into the 1200s. Um, one more thing that is very, very early beginning to rise here that ends up in the Reformation days, the 1500s, having a great impact, and that's the gradual coalescing of what become, became, for us even today, recognizable nations. Not clans, tribes, and peoples, but the early, early, barely discernible outline of countries and nations, um, which hopefully we'll see tonight. Um, so, <clears throat> if we start looking in around the 1200s, there's probably two centuries I want to try to look at. The 12s, the 1300s, and a bit into the 1400s. There was just a lot of craziness going on. Um, so, it's a little bit hard to know where to start, but we'll just start with um, the rise of some, there was a kind of an explosion of new orders and by orders, I'm talking about those monastic orders that had to get permission from the Pope to exist. But there were many, many already by then. Um, orders were groups that would usually form around some kind of a leader and take his name. And they would have a certain particular purpose, maybe evangelism, maybe scholastic you know, teaching. Um, maybe it was, um, well, we'll see a group, we'll see two well-known groups that we know about, the Franciscans and the Dominicans um, that, that grow up here in the 13th century, the, tw the 1200s. Um, this was part of a um, return, literally it's called the Return to Poverty Movement, Okay. And there was the kind of personification, I guess you'd say, of poverty in a, a thought called, uh, they would label Lady Poverty, okay? If you joined uh, St. Francis of Assisi, you've probably, most of us have heard his name. Um, some of those people literally considered themselves married to lady poverty. Okay, you might think, oh, no world. Well, it's not really unusual. Technically, a lot in Catholicism, priests considered married to the church, nuns, m you know, married to. So it, it's just an intellectual concept, but it is an allegiance to 
a certain mode of living with the increasing power, rich riches of the Catholic Church down in these centuries, of course, corruption came in. And people who had, there's always been the group, let's get back to the New Testament. Okay? We, we always have that. Um, and the, in this age, these centuries, the emphasis was on, let's get back to the apostolic poverty of the early church. And the verse that was quoted often was Jesus said, the birds of the air have nests, and you know the animals have, the foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was homeless. They took that and his several commands sell all that you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. Well, they took those, I think, you know, too literally. And so they, they literally believed that you should divest yourself of every dime you had and become completely impoverished and embrace that as the way to sainthood, to purity of heart, and to being a thorough, true Christian. Okay, now there's things about it that are noble, but it still smacks of the th the same issue that humans have always got in into, especially with Christianity. Depart from justification by faith, walking with Christ by faith, and getting into works, um, box checking. You know, I say so many Hail Marys, I do this, I do that, and I don't, I get rid of this, and I starve myself, and I stay up all night and pray. And, and it's, a, it's a human um, energy kind of religion, and it misses, it misses the boat. But this was another backlash then to the riches and the power of the church. So the first one, was St. Francis, <clears throat> and um, in, in several cases, St. Francis, I believe, was, was different. Um, he wasn't necessarily, now he wasn't from nobility and had tons of money, but he wasn't considered just completely, you know, in the slave class or whatever. So whatever he did have, he divested himself. And um, then about the same time, a little bit afterwards, was a guy, um, Dominic, who started what became the uh, Dominicans. And they were different than the monastery, the typical monastery. Typical monastery, you became a monk, which meant you went into a, literally a building, um, a grounds, and you stayed, you stayed there away from society and so forth because society would pollute you. And so it was an escape from the polluting effect of the world, um, missing the fact that pollution's in here. But nevertheless, these people, <coughs> Franciscans, Dominicans, and three or four other groups that are, that are uh, ever heard of the, the, the um, let's see, the Camelites? Um, they're, there's some, um, there's a group called the Cathari. Um, there were a number, but these are two prominent 
of these return to poverty people that started um, monast- or started orders. Now they called themselves mendicants. Okay, you don't have to memorize that, but it meant beggars, begging preachers. Okay, they forsook all. They had no property, no money, no nothing. And then they also called themselves friars instead of monks. Friar means brother. So it was an effort to reverse some of the monastery, gather in, get away from society, and hole up and spend all your time um, meditating on stuff. Um, and they, because they lived in the villages, they didn't hole up in a monastery. They lived among the people, called themselves brothers, preached and lived off of nothing but charity. Okay? Um, so it was a bit different than what the, you know, our idea has become of earlier monasteries. They traveled a lot, and the typical... Um, brown robe rope belt is the look um, that they adopted okay um, now <clears throat> all of this was was again a reaction primarily to when we say the church its riches and power. They were more specific, really, than that. It was the clergy. And there was a group. um, Southern France was not yet Southern France. It was still not unsettled, but it was not a part of the nation of France, okay? And in that area, there was a maverick element within Catholicism. Okay, now, um, un, not unlike a lot of denominations, you'll have a denom- you, may, you may have a denomination that's pretty good generally, but they'll have some pockets in northeastern America or southwest or California, wherever, that are w- way out there. Well, southern France was kind of like that. And the Dominicans and the Franciscans and some of these groups focused their attention on that part of Europe, southern, what's today southern France, and initially felt like they needed to preach to, and sort of a kind approach, a win-them-back thing to both the clergy and to the um, Believers, the parishioners that were affected by these corrupt clergy. And when I say corrupt, I'm talking about every kind of corruption. Money, bribery, um, infidelity, you know, you know um, adultery, little illegitimate kids running all over the place. It was a mess, okay? And it was, a, it was probably the, the darkest area. So some of these... New orders, Franciscans, Dominicans, tried to minister to them to bring them, revive them, turn them around, convince them to come back to what they viewed as true Christianity. Okay? Now, <clears throat> um, 
the, the reaction was they were a failure. They really didn't win anybody back. Um, and so over 50, 60, 80 years, things began to evolve a bit to where the efforts by these new orders became harsher, okay? And <clears throat> they, what we're about to enter into is called the Inquisition. And the Inquisition just came from the word that the Pope charged the bishops with. You need to inquire as to whether th these Catholics in southern France are legitimate or are they heretics. Okay? So, <clears throat> um, the Here's some of the Inquisition um, rules. In fact, 1215, early part of the, uh, the 13th century, um, is when you could say that the, the Inquisition began to pick up some steam. The Dominicans were prominent enforcers of church discipline here, okay? Um, and the reason for the Inquisition was, quote, purge the church of heresy. Now, here's the problem. Let me just ask you, um, when I say, when I just say the word heresy, and when you see it or hear it, um, what comes to your mind? What is heresy? Pardon me? Yeah, I'd go with that. Um, but when we say heresy, what's the general definition? What, what does that mean? Not biblical. It's some departure from biblically revealed Christian teaching. The denial of the Trinity. The denial of, you know, some false view of sin, the doctrine of sin of salvation, of a lot of things. Um, heresy, then, is the denial of a fundamental Christian doctrine. Now, you and I all think that. We're correct. But they didn't think that. They had a completely different definition. The definition of heresy to the Pope in that day really didn't deal much with doctrine. It dealt with Rebellion against the authority of the papacy, of the pope, of the clergy, of the church in general, and the grip they had on people's consciences, and the hold they claimed they had over their very souls and their eternal destiny. So if you said, I reject the doctrine of the Trinity, we and regular people would recognize that's heresy. In that day, if you said, I do not believe that the church, a clergyman, um, has to be the mediator between me and God, and I must go confess my sins to him, and he forgives me, or pronounces penance that I'm to commit, I don't believe in that. That's heresy. 
So heresy took on a totally different definition than what we rightly um, think when we th uh, talk about true heresy. So to question the Pope's authority, to question any of those kinds of things, to question uh, praying to the saints, to question um, the sale of indulgences, you know, the pre-forgiveness that you can purchase. To question any of that was a heresy. Second thing we really have to remember that I think kind of helps us get into the context here. Um, you have a complete merging. Well, let's put it this way. You, you have a complete merging of the church and the state. At this point, the church has swallowed up the state because the pope trumps kings and emperors. Okay? The state was employed, basically, to enforce the church. Okay? Now, so here's what heresy meant. Not only questioning the authority of the church, the pope, and so forth, but it also tore apart, in their mind, it tore the fabric of society because church and state are one. You question the authority of the church, you also question the authority of the state. And that is jeopardizing the very society, the very foundation of society, the culture, and it, it could literally be called a national security issue because it would rend the fabric of the society. And so the second part of their definition of heresy was treason. You're a traitor. What do we do? Well, we don't anymore, but what do we do or are supposed to do with a traitor? You execute them. They're considered that great of a threat to the very life of the nation. Well, they looked at somebody who questioned church authority no different than questioning the country, the king, the army, whoever. So even though it's terribly wrong thinking, it, it a little bit helps to think, to recognize what they were thinking um, in a totally different context than we live in today. Okay? Now, <clears throat> um, the Inquisition then was a life or death deal, they felt, and it started out, and then I, I, I shouldn't say it started out kind of innocently, um, but it evolved and got worse and worse. And at its height, the Inquisition, which was pretty much everywhere, but we do talk often about people have heard uh, the Spanish Inquisition, as if that's the only place it took place. It's not, it was just a hotbed of some of it, but the Inquisition was everywhere, okay? Bishops, archbishops um, presided over it, and here's what you basically had. Here's the rules. Um, if you were charged with um, <coughs> heresy, 
One, if you're accused, your, your duty is to prove your innocence. You are guilty unless you can prove that you are innocent. Okay? Second, you were allowed no counsel, no attorney, no advisor, nobody. Okay? Three, you could not know who accused you, and obviously, nor could you face them. So you had no idea where the accusation of heresy came from or who made it. You were never allowed to have that. Um, fourth, the people that examined you many of times were either they were the bishop of the area or whatever, or they were specially assigned Dominicans or whoever. They, they operated by no uh, specific written law. They didn't have to follow any laws. The examiner was the judge, the jury, and the enforcer of whatever sentence, okay? And their power, the power f f that the examiner um, operated under was no law at all. It was the Pope. So there's no law. That's, I can't even get a hold of that because we automatically say, yeah, but that's not legal. The, there was no such thing. So the examiner could do, say, whatever they wanted. Um, let's see. Fifth, the trial was secret. No one could attend it. No one even knew it was going on other than you. And sometimes you didn't even need to be present at the start. I mean, it was... And then um, there's two more. <coughs> In... From about, well, in the, this kind of got going about around 1215 or so. By the 1250s, there was a particular ruling that the Pope made, which took a while to get there. Um, but it was a ruling that allowed torture to be used on the heretic to get them to confess. Okay. Now, that had not been allowed specifically earlier. But, uh, oh, they went back clear to uh, Augustine and several other people who felt like, you know, the death penalty was um, legitimate f for someone who denied the faith, okay? Um, so, and, and took them out of context. But nevertheless, they went back to some older um, church fathers to try to justify this new ruling that I guess it is okay if we torture this guy. So he'll tell us, yeah, indeed, he's a heretic. Um, then the, the punishment, almost no punishment was ever handed out other than burning at the stake. Okay, so it wasn't like exile, it wasn't probation, you know, it wasn't community service. Um, you were nobody that got accused wasn't a heretic, okay? And so the examiner then would pronounce them guilty and they'd be burned at the stake. Um, <clears throat> so that, this, this, what we're seeing here is a real slow um, 
desperation and unraveling um, of the authority of the church. The, we're, about, we're about in the 12s and the 1300s. We're about at the absolute peak of uh, papal authority. Okay? And you abuse it long enough and you're, it's going to collapse. And you, there's rising resentment and so forth. And it takes sometimes centuries as it did in this case. But um, there's a backlash. Okay, um, <clears throat> and here's the main thing. Yes, the Pope had armies, and he had the armies of kings that were beholden to him at his disposal. But in the end, the main hold that the church had over people was over their eternal souls. And once somebody figures out, they get a Bible, and there were some, there were some underground translations of scripture and things of this and people began just barely very slowly to figure out i no man could determine my eternal destiny if god's all he says he is i answer to him and it's kind of like it, it's like pulling your finger out of the dike um, and a trickle turns into a torrent when people start figuring out that the real authority has just been a boogeyman over their souls. I don't have to listen to this, okay? The rise of nations and um, um, kingly dynasties helped that because they begin to strut around a little bit and say, hey, some pope in Italy, I'm sick of listening to them. I'm not going to do what they tell me anymore. I don't need them. I got armies. I got money. I got property. Buzz off. That just started putting up little green shoots out of the ground during these times. Um, now, what I think is <clears throat> kind of interesting here, and I think we got time, to finish all this. In these 12s, and then as we begin to move into the 14th century, the early 1300s, there are two, um, two things that, well, I don't know if we'll get through all this or not. I'll do my best. But anyway, um, there was something called the Babylonian captivity, and second, the Great Schism. Okay. The Babylonian captivity was a reference back to the Jews being carried off to Babylon captivity. And the length of time that the Babylonian captivity labeled Babylonian captivity, ca captivity in the Catholic Church was two years different than the 70 years that the Jews spent in Babylon. Okay, So they took that phrase, and here's what was going on. <clears throat> um, just a couple of the countries that were slowly becoming nations, France, England, Germany. Now, Czechoslovakia, some of those uh, countries, Scandinavians, were in the same process. But the bigger heavyweights were France, Germany, England. Okay. 
Well, England and France especially were a bit ahead um, of Germany. In um, France, Philip the Fair. Okay, that's a good, you know, you can use that. Philip the Fair and was over France. Edward I was over England. Okay, now, they're rising countries, powerful, um, got armies, you know, uh, trade, money, power. Um, <clears throat> both of these, here's what happened. Both these kings needed revenue. What a surprise. Um, lavish spending and so forth, they needed more income. Okay, Both of them, separately but at the same time, came on a wonderful idea. There are vast vast swaths of French and English countryside and top property, um, you know, oceanfront stuff, all of it owned by the church. Okay? The clergy were, in most cases, um, fat and flourishing. Okay? Um, I know I shouldn't say that's, that's, what is that, body shaming? Um, anyway, they were corpulent, uh, <laughs> well-fed. Anyway, um, these two kings at the same time figured out, hey, we don't tax those people. All that property is untaxed. All this money and these clergy going around and the bishops going around with big ruby rings and all, we don't tax any of that. So they thought, we're going to tax it, okay? Well, the Pope at that time was a guy named Boniface. There's been several of them took that name. But anyway, and I can't remember if he was the first or the third or whoever. But anyway, um, of course, he didn't like that very well. So he fires off, you know, letters and probably emissaries to go to the King of France, Philip, and the King of England, Edward, and tell him, if you tax them, if you, if you tax our property and my clergyman, we'll excommunicate you. You know, put an interdiction on the whole country. Nobody had communion, communion, the whole bunch are going to hell. <clears throat> so, these, both these two kings, especially the one in France, had... It's kind of like a perfect storm coming together. They realized the Pope depends on us for armies and so forth. He needs us worse than we need him. We're as wealthy or more than he is. We're sick of it. So um, they fired back to the Pope and they said, we will stop all pilgrimages to Rome. We will stop all the normal flow of offerings, tithes, or, you know, whatever, that does go to Rome, will lock the place up tight. Boniface caved. And he said, well, there are certain emergencies, I guess, you're being threatened. We always, from the frontiers, by the crazy Germans and whoever. So I realize you've got to raise a lot of money for armies and so forth. So um, basically, he caved. And he said, okay, f this once 
for some period of time, you can tax our properties. Okay? Well, I don't know. It wasn't very many years even that long in the whole story. But Philip of France threw an archbishop into prison because he accused him of treason. I don't know what kind of treason, but something to try to assassinate him or something. So anyway, um, he throws this bishop in prison. Well, Boniface, he writes back and he says, okay, the deal's off when I said you could tax us. I'm not doing that anymore. And, you know, we're excommunicating you. Well, rather than wilting, Philip gets a group of, he got, all, he got nobles together, he got, you know, military people and all that, and they put together, I don't know, some, I don't know how many people, <clears throat> but they made the trip from central France to Rome to depose the Pope. If they had to, they'd kill him. Okay? Um, this was unheard of three or four hundred years before that because this is the Holy Father. Um, so you, you can see where things are headed. I think if we understand some of the context, it's not hard to think 150 years later, here comes Martin Luther. Um, it, it fits. So anyway, Philip comes to Rome and Boniface isn't at home. He's up in the foothills at one of his umpteen palaces where it's cooler because it's in the summer. And so anyway, they go break into his fortress where he's at and th no one knows if they really did anything to him much or whatever, but he was 86 years old, okay? It scared the daylights out of him, apparently. And nobody knew exactly what was going on. For three or four days, the people in this city that was some miles north of Rome didn't know what was going on. Finally, they figured it out, so they put together this huge mob, and they go up there, and they rescue the Pope from Philip and his soldiers, okay? But the Pope dies, I think, within a week or so, because the whole thing shook him up so bad, okay? So, um, <clears throat> they came up with another Pope. He also died very quickly. So, things were in kind of a turmoil. Um, now, by now, this is thir uh, 1305. 1305, the College of Cardinals, which still today elects the Pope, but the College of Cardinals was made up of a majority of French cardinals. Okay? So, they go to Rome, and they vote, or they're going to vote on a new Pope. Well, they were mobbed, a huge mob, of Italian Catholics. Italian people are, you know. Yeah, I'm going I'm to have a picture of Kelly put up so we can, you know. But they formed literally just a huge riot. And they demanded of the cardinals, the College of Cardinals, that you elect an Italian. So they did. They elected an Italian. He took the name Urban, and I think it was Urban the Fourth or some fifth or something. Okay, um, that was in April. Okay, in April of 1305, they elect this um, 
Italian <coughs> um, pope. Now, <clears throat> no, you know, guy, you guys, this is so confusing, but I'm, I'm off. I, I got to wait on Urban. The guy they elected that was the Italian, he took the name Clement. Clement, okay? Now, so Clement never set foot in Rome. He moved to a French city called um, Avignon, okay? Because he didn't like Rome, okay? Um, even though he was, I guess, an Italian, he moves. And that starts 72 years of that pope plus six succeeding popes who ended up ruling from Avignon, not Rome. So the Rome, Rome, of course, had been the center of everything for 1,500 years before Christ. I mean, you go back two, 300 years B.C. So it was just unthinkable that the um, headquarters of the church, the seat of power for the Roman Catholic Church would not be in Rome, but in this other French city, okay? It was there for 72 years, and as I said, a total of seven popes. Now, um, so it was called, the rest of the Catholic Church called it the Babylonian captivity because it was like they were carried off to those apostates in southern France. <clears throat> now, um, at the end, um, at the end of this 72-year um, um, issue, <clears throat> um, they got together and um, figured out, you know, what are we going to do next? Because there's a lot of ruckus going on over who should be who should be the pope, the real pope. Well. Um, they had elected this guy, um, <coughs> Clement, and there was such ruckus over the fact that they had elected him under pressure from the mobs in Rome that the College of Cardinals got together in just four or five months later and said, that they had been pressured to elect this guy and that he was actually an apostate they had discovered. Apostate means, you know, no faith. He was a, he was a um, charlatan. He wasn't even a Christian, okay? So they said, um, we will get, we'll elect another pope, okay? So... They elected, and let me see what the year um, <clears throat> was, if I can find it quickly. Um, at any rate, <clears throat> let me just say this. Um, they elected a second pope. That's the guy that took um, the name Urban, okay? Um, and he ruled in Rome, all right? So now you have two popes. You've got Clement 
and you've got urban. They're both excommunicating each other. They're both preaching. They're both preaching crusades, meaning just like there were some crusades. This is in the middle of the crusade times anyway, because that went on about 300 years. So they would, they were, both popes are selling indulgences. Pay the money, get your sins forgiven. To raise money for armies to go drive out each other. Okay? Go from Rome up to southern France, Avignon, and get rid of that pope and vice versa. Okay? So this went on <coughs> for... Um, I think, <clears throat> let me check my notes here, but I think it was um, 37 years, no, 39 years they went with two popes, okay? Continually um, excommunicating each other, fighting against each other, trying to get people to side with them and so forth. Um, now, France backed Clement because Clement moved to France, okay? Um, Italy and England backed Urban. I have no idea. I can see Italians because they got an Italian. I can't understand England. I don't know what the deal is. Scotland backed Clement. Okay? So you have the church and the Rome, Holy Roman Empire just fractured. That went on for 39 years. Okay? Now, at the end of 39 years, which was 1395, the leading scholars and professors at the University of Paris stepped forward and said, we need to have a general church council and we got to settle this thing because we got two popes, it's crazy, and we got we to gotta figure this out. Well, then they discovered that according to canon law, which is Roman Catholic law, only the pope can call a general council. Well, you got two popes, neither of which are going to call a general council that might result in getting rid of them. Okay? So they sort of broke the long-standing laws, and they ended up holding a council in a place called Constance in Germany. Okay? Kind of neutral ground. And so um, <clears throat> they met, and this ended up being in... Um, Let's see. Yeah, 1395 was when they decided to try to get together. Then 1409 is when they had this come to Jesus meeting. We've got to figure this out. Um, so here's what they do. They throw out or vote to depose both Clement and Urban. And they elect a third you know, they elect somebody else. Who takes the name Alexander V? Okay? So you got Alexander V, the newly elected pope by the cardinals. The two guys that were deposed refused to resign. So now you got three popes. Okay? All of whom are excommunicating each other and so forth. So... In four, so that really went, no, the 1409 meeting never went anywhere. So they call another meeting. Now this is in 1414. <clears throat> this is the one that they meet in Germany. And here's what's really interesting, maybe, about that meeting. 
it was run by the kings. The voting and the representation was by nation, not by parish or bishopric, but the, it was, they even had lay representatives there. So it was the first time that the state kind of muscled the church off to the edge of the stage and took over. So that's huge. And it signals the weakening of the papacy. Okay? Now, <clears throat> um, so they, I don't know what all they did for three years, but it was finally in 1417, this council got one of those two, I don't know, I can't remember which one it is, either Clement or Urban, those first two popes, they got one of them to voluntary quit. The other one wouldn't, so they voted to depose him. Okay? And they also deposed um, this third one that they had elected. So they're, they're now down to one guy who they didn't pay attention to, and they got rid of the other two out of the three popes they had. And then they ended up electing a brand new pope by the name of Martin, or he took the name Martin V. Okay? So that was called the Great Schism. It pitted um, rising nations of Catholics, England, France, to some degree Germany, against Italy, which was losing ground. And um, Rome, in a sense, was losing ground. Now, here's what Martin V did. Martin V, by this council, is elected pope. You'd think he'd be grateful to the council. Well, the first thing he did after he was crowned pope was by executive action, canceled every single resolution, everything that that council that elected him did, except for the act of electing him pope. So if they had 30 pieces of legislature or things that they decided, he canceled them all, except for the election that put him on, on the throne of Peter, okay? Um, but what it really did was it kicked off, that kicked off a movement which is not all that interesting, but it's, but it's significant. It's called the um, conciliar movement. And that was the big debate as to whether the Pope was ultimate authority or a church council held ultimate authority. And they took some actions at that council where Martin was elected that, of course, he didn't like because they elevated the council, the power of a council of the whole church, um, above the authority of the pope. In other words, if they passed a doctrinal thing or whatever, the pope had much say and all that, but he had to, he had to abide by the decision of the council. It had never been that way necessarily before. The popes would either ignore a council or get the council to do what it, they wanted them to do. So that movement was another piece of the puzzle of the slow decay and beginning um, to fracture um, of the, the authority of the pope. 
Okay? Now, notice this last action, this council, was in 1417. Okay? That is, that is just um, <clears throat> 100 years before Martin Luther. Um, so you can begin to see how the Reformation, um, at least started by Martin Luther, was not a spontaneous thing or something that just kind of came up overnight uh, and was a big surprise. The, the cracks were appearing for uh, quite a while. In the intervening hundred years, the papacy got even more corrupt and more remote and more desperate to maintain their authority. And I'll just throw these names out, um, and then I think I'll let you out early. Um, <clears throat> but there are two very, we could maybe say a third, but two very, very prominent early, you could say pre-Reformation reformers who um, came on the scene and ultimately were, uh, one of them was burned at the stake. But they were John Wycliffe or Wycliffe, different pronunciations in England, professor there, and <clears throat> John Huss. John Huss was Czech Bohemian. Um, Wycliffe was earlier, and he, um, he committed a mortal sin by translating parts of the English, or parts of the Bible into English. For some centuries, a Bible in the vernacular, in, in, if you were Italian, a Bible in Italian, everything was in Latin. For some centuries, a Bible translated into the language of the people of that region was on the banned list, B-A-N-N-E-D. You were not allowed to do that. Um, so if you didn't know Latin, which was the intellectual language, or some Greek possibly, you, you didn't have access to scripture. But you didn't need it because it was read to you maybe by the priest and didn't matter. Um, but <clears throat> um, Wycliffe in England not only translated, um, that is why, by the way, you know there's some old names that we don't know why, but you know the, the well-known global missions organization, um, Wycliffe translators, they translate scripture and they go to unreached tribes, tribes that don't even have an alphabet, and they will live with them for years and listen to them and start trying to get the sounds of their language into a, an alphabet, teach them the alphabet and end up creating and teaching them a language when all they have is just the verbal. And then they translate scripture so they can have scripture in their own language. And it's called the Wycliffe Translators or Wycliffe International um, because after John Wycliffe, who was a groundbreaker in that. But also, he wrote and taught um, Oxford, at Oxford, and attacked, you know, the abuses he thought he saw. The Pope, indulgences, um, all, the, all that junk. 
what got him in the worst trouble. And he ended up dying, protected somewhat by the king of England. So he was not martyred, okay? But he ended up, uh, so he died in a fairly old age. But the, the, he touched the third rail, okay, um, in Catholicism, uh, Catholicism of that day, which was he denounced transubstantiation. He said the notion that a priest praying over bread and wine literally becomes the body and blood of Christ is not biblical. It's superstitious magic, and it has nothing to do with Scripture. Um, and so that got him... He, he was popular until then. And then people felt, well, hey, wait a minute. He'd gone way too far. And so they swung around to um, line up with the Pope against him. But the Catholic Church, after he died, um, I don't know how many years later, it wasn't a lot, but after he died, they got the last word in because they dug his bones up and they burned them at the stake. I tell you what, we got him. Um, now, and I'll go into a little more detail next week. John Huss was another, just a dear, um, he was a scholar, wrote a lot of books, same, many of the same things of Wycliffe. Um, but he didn't have, <clears throat> he was in Bohemia, Czechoslovakia. He didn't have protection from the authorities um, like Wycliffe had some degree of it. He wrote a lot of books. Um, preached, pastored, and uh, they finally, um, you know, had an inquisition, <clears throat> found him guilty, and of course they gave him a number of opportunities to recant, and he wouldn't do it. Um, and one, some of his last responses was, for a whole chapel full of gold, I won't give up the scripture in my conscience. Uh, and my faith in God. When they led him to the stake to burn him, he walked past a bonfire in the church courtyard of all of his books that they could get a hold of, that they were burning. Um, and they asked him tauntingly what he thought. Uh, he laughed. His point was, and he said, basically, the truth, you can burn all the books you want. It doesn't, face, it doesn't phase the truth or change my stance. The truth still the truth. Burn away. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so he was an early pre-Reformation martyr. There was another one um, in, in uh, well, he was in Venice and can't remember several cities. Savonarola was a bit later. Uh, but he was also a really charismatic preacher, and people loved to come and hear him, flocked to hear him, and they ended up, I think it was um, a square, I'm not sure if it was in Venice or not, I can't remember for sure, Florence, I think it was Florence. Anyway, they, he was burned at the stake. Um, <clears throat> those were three, uh, there were many more, but those were prominent ones, and I really won't get too far ahead here, but when Luther finally ended up on trial, the big thing that the um, prosecutor um, Eck was his name from the Pope's office 
did his best to get Luther to admit to was the Luther's writings and his beliefs and his arguments against the church lined up with Huss, Wycliffe, and those guys, which meant he would have to admit he was a heretic like they were. Um, anyway, it, it's an interesting time um, that we're m moving into here. So um, we'll, we'll look at the 1400s um, this next week and then start, which will get us into at least the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Luther, and then, then it just explodes. There's a whole bunch of names that some which you don't, you'll never remember, but it's good as we get within, you know, 500 years, 400 years of us to start recognizing who some of these people are, and then their followers are denominations in many cases that are still in existence and very active and alive today in the world and in the United States. So, um, hopefully some of this is getting a little more what relevant uh, as we get closer to our days okay any questions thoughts anybody's got before we quit it's eight o'clock which is just pretty amazing that you get out this early but okay father in heaven <coughs> Again, we thank you for the people that have gone before us. And Lord, I know that it's not something, I guess, to be ashamed of. We live in a day when, fortunately, we enjoy privileges that, at this point in, at least, we're not facing burning at the stake for our faith. Someday we may. But as we look back on those who gave literally their lives for faithful scriptural teaching help us appreciate them and recognize all those that have gone before us and given us what we have today go with us as we go and keep us safe we ask in jesus name amen